The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. You ever wonder about that? David's out in the wilderness and he's in a cave and he brings along his parchment and his pen. Or, you know, he's out fleeing Absalom and he's writing psalms to the Lord. He must have had a scribe with him all the time and said, you know what? I want you to write what's on my mind right now. Oh, well. Anyway, here we go. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how they have increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. Okay, we're in Leviticus 23 again. We're starting the annual feasts of the Lord. We're in verses 4 through 8 today. Verse 4, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. And as I try to do, and I forgot for a couple weeks, but uh, I want to take you to the book of Hebrews, and I want to take you through... The purpose of the law and the fact that the law is annulled in Christ, just in case somebody clicks on this sermon and they're looking for something that they're supposed to be observing these things, the law is done. Here's what it says in Hebrews 7, verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, we went from Aaron the high priest of the old covenant to Christ the high priest of the new covenant, of necessity. Of necessity. Blah, boy, am I, I am tongue twisted. Wow, there is also a change of the law. Okay, there you go. Well, we finally got that out, but there is a change of the law. There's a change of when there is a change of the priesthood. And then verse 18 of the same chapter, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. The law is annulled. Annulled means done. You know what? And the funny thing is I will send these verses. Somebody will send me an email and say, well, we need to be under the law of Moses. And we got to do this and that. And I will send them right out of the word of God, these verses, and they, they, they completely ignore it completely ignore it. Happens almost every single day. Here we go. We're going into uh, chapter 8, verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. It's done. It's obsolete. And then you get a presupposition in your head, and you find out that the word of God conflicts with it. You need to drop that presupposition. You need to do it, because the Lord is telling you something. In chapter 10, verse 9, it says, he takes away the first, speaking of the law of Moses, that he may establish the second. That is annulled, 
it is obsolete and it is taken away. And then in Colossians 2, verse 14, which will take me just a second to get there, I'll read you that. That's, you know, I, I always put this last because some people at least will read the book of um, Hebrews because it's written to the Hebrews and they think, well, that must be okay. But a lot of people will reject Paul outright. Hey, man, it's in the word of God. Take out Paul, you take everything out of scripture. Everything. Here we go. Colossians 2, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting, meaning the law of Moses, wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. The law of Moses was not something that was for us. It was against us. People need to understand that, which is contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Once again, the symbolism is Christ was nailed to the cross. He embodies the law of Moses. He died, the law of Moses died when he died, and in came the new covenant in his blood. I don't know how people can miss that symbolism, but they do. So we just will keep proclaiming the word of God as it's written, and hopefully they will learn someday. Now, with the weekly Sabbath explained last week, today we begin the annual feasts of the Lord. The first two of them, Passover and Unleavened Bread, have already been explained rather thoroughly in past sermons. However, The Lord is restating them now as feasts of the Lord because he wanted Israel to carefully observe them each year at set times. They were to be annual pictures of Christ to come. If they paid attention to the symbolism of the Bible and grasped what various things picture, they would then be able to more readily understand the evident nature of Christ's fulfillment of each of them. They would also then know what was expected of them after he completed his work. Unfortunately, Israel as a whole missed it. A certain portion of them got it, but the vast majority did not. For the most part, even Christians don't really get it either. There are a lot more people in today's world than in past years who are going back and looking more carefully at the Old Testament and seeing how it points to Christ. This is a good thing. And yet at the same time, there are a lot of supposed Christians who are not only going back and looking at the Old Testament, They are unfortunately sticking to it as a means to an end instead of looking at how it points to Christ. They have taken and started applying these things to themselves and to their own lives. It has become a viral infection within the church. Instead of seeing the annual feasts of the Lord as remarkable markers of Israel's history, which were to lead them to recognize their Messiah when he came, They instead find them to be observances, which will hopefully lead them to a closer relationship with the Lord of the Old Testament. As wacky as that sounds, that is what is going on. It happened to me this week after giving the Sabbath sermon. Emails came flooding in, misciting and abusing scripture in order to show that we are still under the law of Moses. One of them in particular, and I get it every single time, is this. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to take you to Matthew 5. And I'm going to explain why this is incorrect. Matthew 5, verse 17 says the following. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle. Now, a jot is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a yud. It's just a little teeny little letter. It would be, we have small letters in the English. The smallest one would probably be an I or something. Okay. A tittle would be like the dot on the I. We've got letters that are very similar to each other. You've got a calf and a bait, and they're very similar, except the bait has a little thing at the bottom of it, so you can see that it's this with the thing instead of that, and that's how you tell the difference. There's about four or five different 
letters in the Hebrew Aleph Bet that are very similar. And so not one Yod and not one, uh, it's called a Kotso Shel Yud, a Kotso um, is going to be missing from the law. Okay, that is what Jesus is saying there. The law is absolutely perfect and not one jot and not one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And then they go on and they cite, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness, you exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, we're under the law of Moses and you're going to go to hell for teaching that we're not under law of Moses. That's not at all what that's saying. He's speaking to who? He's speaking to the Jewish people who were still under the law. They were under the law of Moses and he is saying that this law is binding forever unless you come to me. He says, what did he say right here? He said, until to destroy but to fulfill. And fulfill he did. He is the embodiment of the law. That's why Paul wrote in Colossians 2.14 that the law is dead. It was nailed to the cross and he died. The law died. It is annulled. But if you are not in Christ then you are obligated to every jot and every tittle of the law of Moses, which Paul says stands contrary to us. We stand condemned by being observant of the law of Moses. That is what he is saying. He's not saying that we are required forever to observe the law of Moses because the people that say that don't go down to Jerusalem and sacrifice the animals. They don't do 600 of the 613 things found under the law of Moses. And yet they say that they're being obedient people to the word of God. They're being disobedient and they will be condemned because of that. That is how important this is. When somebody sends you that verse, you need to make sure that you understand what to tell them. Don't get confused by these people. He is the fulfillment of the law. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe unto righteousness or unto righteousness to all who believe, according to Paul in Romans, I think it's 14. Anyway, so we'll go on from there now that you understand. Don't let people get you duped by that. They take a few verses, they take them out of context, and they confuse you. And the next thing you know, you're pulling your face and you're saying, have I done everything I need to do? The answer is no, you haven't. Christ has, and you are in him. You don't need to do it. People need to realize that the Lord Jehovah of the old is the Lord Jesus of the new. These annual feasts were given to show us what he would do for us, and thus how we were to then live for him. They are mere shadows of spiritual truths which pointed to the reality which is found in Christ Jesus. Our text verse today is the same as it was last week, and it's the same as it's going to be for the next six sermons. It's from Colossians chapter 2. So let no one judge you in food or drink, speaking of the dietary laws of Israel, or regarding a festival, which is the feasts of the Lord that we're looking at right now, or a new moon or Sabbath. New moon is a monthly occurrence that they were required to observe, the Sabbath we dealt with last week, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The substances of Christ. The feasts of Israel were shadows, not reality. In Christ, we have the substance, and in Christ, we are to dwell. The tragedy of law observance in today's world is all the more heartbreaking when one considers that all it takes is a minor amount of study to realize that Christ is the end of these things. He is the fulfillment of them. If I were to take you outside and offer you a table full of gold and other riches or let you take the shadow in its place, which would you go for? The fool would go for the shadow and he would end up with nothing. 
one cannot take a shadow. In the end, he is left completely empty-handed. On the other hand, the wise person, which I know everybody in this room today is, would take the table full of riches. And guess what? In taking the substance, you get the shadow too. You get it all. But please, I would ask you to leave me the table. That was not a part of the offer. You can take the stuff on top of it and go buy your own table with the gold that you got, okay? All kidding aside, the person who is caught up in law observance is the fool who gets nothing. Even the shadow he thinks he possesses will be taken from him. For the truly wise person, grab the substance, take hold of Christ Jesus, and rejoice in his work accomplished for us, and then live for him as you were shown how to do. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is the Passover. It's verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations. Although not word for word, this is practically a repeat of verse 2. There the Lord said, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. And because this is now repeated, it is generally assumed by some scholars that the Sabbath isn't actually a feast of the Lord. This is incorrect. It is a feast of the Lord, one which is weekly in nature. These are annual and thus are set apart from the weekly Sabbath. Further, by designating the Sabbath first and separately, the intent was to ensure that the annual feast was not to override or nullify the weekly Sabbath. They were to be held concurrently if they fell to the same day, but the Sabbath requirement was not to be ignored. With that understanding, the repetition concerning the feasts of the Lord is now given to enumerate the annual feasts in their order. Although a bit confusing, the calendar to be used here is the redemption calendar mandated by the Lord in Exodus chapter 12. Until that time of the Exodus, the beginning of the annual calendar was in the seventh month, originally known in Hebrew as Ethanim, a word meaning something like permanent flowings. After the Babylonian exile, the name of the month took on the Aramaic name Tishri. That's the word that is used even to this day for the seventh month of the Hebrew, or actually it's the first month of the Hebrew year right now. I don't want to confuse you, but there are two calendars in the Bible, all right? This word Tishri comes from an Akkadian word, Tasritu, meaning beginning. This could rightly then be called the creation calendar because it was used since the time of the creation. However, Tishri would become the seventh month in the newly established redemption calendar, This redemption calendar was first mandated in the book of redemption, Exodus. There in Exodus chapter 12, it says the following. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. The name of this newly established first month was Aviv, meaning ear, especially green ears of grain. Later, after the Babylonian exile, the name of the month would be changed to the Aramaic name, Nisan. In Assyrian, the word means beginning. Thus, it is a new beginning after the first. The calendar change itself gives us insights into God's new beginnings in Christ. This pattern of creation followed by redemption is seen all the way throughout the Bible. It is seen in the calendars used, also in the giving of the Ten Commandments. They were relayed to the people first based on creation in the Decalogue of Exodus chapter 20. However, it is based on redemption in the Decalogue of Deuteronomy 5. I talked about that in detail last week. 
all the way at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the praising of God for his marvelous works is first given based on his creative efforts, and then it is based on his redemptive efforts. We are being shown spiritual truths in how God lays out his word and his plans. The feasts of the Lord, therefore, will contain such spiritual truths as we are seeing here. God is the creator, and he is also the redeemer. His feasts will show us the redemptive process of man through pictures of the coming Christ. Verse 4 continues, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. In the annual calendar, the arrival of each feast was proclaimed at its appointed time by the Lord. This was done with trumpet blasts heralding in the start of the new feast day. It is to be noted now that although all of the feasts are appointed by the Lord in anticipation of their fulfillment in Christ Jesus, not all of them are actually fulfilled on a specific day. For example, no specific calendar day is given for the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of Weeks is based on the Feast of First Fruits. Whenever that day would occur, 50 days later would come the Feast of Weeks. No calendar day is specified for either in Scripture. Now, you will hear some talks on the Feasts of the Lord, or you will read some commentaries on the Feasts of the Lord, and they will say that it was the 16th of the month of Nisan. If you read Flavius Josephus, he says that. That is not in Scripture. That was a tradition later added, okay? That has nothing to do with Scripture, and I want to make sure you understand that. The Feast of first fruits and the Feast of Week has no specific calendar day assigned to it in Scripture. That's very important to remember. The Feast of Yom Kippur is specified for the 10th day of the 7th month, but it was literally fulfilled on the same day as the Passover, when Christ died as both our Passover lamb and our atoning sacrifice. The calendar was set for Israel to demonstrate a logical order in which redemptive acts now take place. But that order is actually realized solely in the now fulfilled work of Christ. These feasts can logically be ordered not according to the calendar year, but on what they have accomplished through the life and ministry of Christ Jesus. A breakdown of this would be what I handed to you a minute ago and what the people online can see. I've got little lines and stuff for the people online, so it'll make much more sense. I've got different colors to code it, but just so you know that this is a pattern that I came up with, all right? It's a logical pattern based on what Christ did, not on how they're listed in the Bible, but on what he did. The first one would be Yom Teruah. Many people call it the Feast of Trumpets. That is incorrect. The word is not trumpet. Teruah means to shout or to acclaim, so it would be the day of acclamation. That is the birth of Jesus Christ into humanity, a redemptive act tied to the beginning of the creation calendar. And you're going to see this with each of these sets of feasts, creation, redemption, creation, redemption. You're going to see that. Okay, the next one that logically follows is Pesach or Passover. It is signifying redemption. It is a one-time redemptive act based on the perfect life of Christ, summed up in his birth through crucifixion. In other words, his entire life is summed up in the crucifixion on the cross on the day of Passover. Yom Kippur corresponds with that. The first one is in the redemption calendar. The second one is in the creation calendar. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. It is atonement. It is, like the Passover, a one-time redemptive act based on the perfect life of Christ, summed up in his birth through his crucifixion. Both of them have the same meaning, but one is redeeming, one is atoning. You see how they correspond. The next one logically fits with the first one. 
It is bikarim or first fruits. It is the resurrection. It is the birth of Jesus Christ from the dead. So go back to the first one, Yom Teruah, the birth of Christ into humanity. That was at the redemption calendar. This one, or I'm sorry, the creation calendar. This is at the beginning of the redemption calendar. It is the birth of Christ from the dead. It is a one-time redemptive act on a date determined by the Lord. And then you have a unique feast. It doesn't have any corresponding feast to it. That is the one that we're going to be looking at today, and it pertains to you and I in the process of sanctification when we are in Jesus Christ. There's no corresponding feast. It is hamatzot, or unleavened bread. It's what we take when we take the Lord's Supper. Every Sunday, it is hamatzot, okay? It signifies sanctification. It is a redemptive act ongoing for God's people for those who are in Jesus Christ, okay? And then we have two more that correspond. Shavuot, or weeks, which is part of the redemption calendar, God indwelling man, made available because of the crucifixion and resurrection. It is a one-time redemptive act on a date determined by the timing of the resurrection. And corresponding with that is Sukkot, or tabernacles, God dwelling with man. So you have God indwelling man, you have God dwelling with man. It is proven by the resurrection. The feast sums up the purpose of all redemptive acts of the Lord. It is ongoing for God's people even into eternity. And that's why it is the only feast that is specifically mandated in the book of Zechariah, which will be observed during the millennial reign of Christ. Why? Because Christ is dwelling with his people. He's dwelling with man. It's the feast that on the very last page of the Bible is noted again. God is dwelling with man. Let me read it to you so you don't think I'm making stuff up as we go. Give me a second to find the page. And I'm improvising here, so you have to listen to some page shuffles. But we're going to go to Revelation 22. And it says here, um, where is it? Um, Behold, and the Lord said to me, these are, okay, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Right? It is God dwelling with man. And it also says it in chapter 21. Explicitly, it says it in chapter 21. Here's what it says. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the tent, the Sukkot, the dwelling with God. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Feast fulfilled, but ongoing forever and ever and ever. Okay, everybody keep those things that I gave you so that you can have them for all of the feasts and you can understand the logical structure which God has laid out in his word. And as I said, nobody's ever seen this before because I sat down and developed that pattern. I've never seen anybody else come up with that pattern before. But verse five, on the 14th day of the first month, the day mandated here was first determined in Exodus 12, verse six. But it must be taken in the proper context of Exodus 12. There it said these words concerning the Passover. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take from it the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. When the Lord spoke those words to Israel, it was the very first time that the term Eddah or congregation was used. 
That word comes from another word, ya'ad, which means to appoint or to meet. They were first called at that time, at the time of the Exodus, to be a congregation of people involved in a united act according to the commandment of God. The Passover is a feast of the Lord is based on that original Passover held at the time of the Exodus from the bondage of Egypt. It was that redemptive act which was now to be celebrated annually on the same day of the original occurrence, meaning the 14th of the month. But that was merely a picture of the coming work of Christ, delivering humanity from the bondage of sin under the devil's yoke. On the 10th day of the month, the people were told to take a lamb according to the house of the father. That means appropriate to the size of the house. The word lamb there was se. And it simply means one of the flock. It can be either a goat or a lamb. They were to take such an animal without blemish and keep it until the 14th of the month. Everything about the Passover was given in anticipation of Jesus Christ. In that original Passover, the lamb was a sacrifice which would, because of its nourishment for the people's bodies, carry them through the exodus of their redemption from Egypt. Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. His life, because of its nourishment, carries the believer through the exodus of our redemption from the world of sin and death, which Egypt pictures in the Old Testament. Paul in the New Testament explicitly calls Jesus our Passover. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, he says this, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Feast fulfilled in Christ. That the lamb was to be without blemish is seen realized in Christ's perfect life. In Luke 23, after his interrogation concerning the Lord, Pontius Pilate declared Jesus without fault. Here's what he said. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. In Hebrews 7 verse 26, we also read this about Jesus. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And Peter, writing to the Jews of the dispersion, refers directly to the Passover for his description of Jesus. He says, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. No defect was to be seen in the Passover lambs because they were to picture to the world the perfect, undefiled, and spotless lamb of God. As we read, the selected animal was further specified as a male of the first year. This requirement was given to the Hebrews as a note concerning the lamb standing in the place of the firstborn. In the plague upon Egypt, all of the firstborn were to die. But for those of Israel, the firstborn was to be redeemed through the death of the lamb. Thus, it is an act of substitution. The mandate also looked ahead to Christ. In the first year, an animal is considered more perfect in terms of innocence. And yet, it is in its midst of life. Later in Exodus, it was prescribed that such offerings came after the eighth day of their life. This is the same day that a baby is circumcised. Therefore, the chosen animals picture the innocent Christ in the midst of life. Not a baby born in Bethlehem, not an old man in Nazareth, but a male in Jerusalem in the midst of his life, and yet endowed with innocence. It was he who was to be made an offering for our redemption He was born without original sin, lived without any sort of committed transgression, and was humble, pure, undefiled, and harmless. 
Christ is the epitome of what we would think of in such an innocent animal, and he is what the Passover animal was to prefigure. Along with being of the first year, one more aspect of the animal was noted. It could be either from the sheep or from the goats. Both animals are used as suitable sacrifices in the Bible for various reasons. The exception which allowed for either a sheep or a goat was probably given to allow the poorer people to buy a less valuable goat instead of a sheep. The smell of the goat offering isn't as sweet as the lamb. You ever smell lamb cooking? You know you've got something really good out there. The goat doesn't have that same smell. But it was an acceptable sin offering. It was a picture of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, a goat offering, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The lamb, having the finer smell, also pictures Christ as the words of Ephesians 5 state. He says, and walk in love, as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The lamb was generally considered the more likely choice at the Passover and among the people, but either animal ultimately pictures Christ. Thus, the Lord allowed either for the feast. And so, understanding these previously provided guidelines which were given to Israel, it is on the 14th day of the first month that the Passover would begin, as it next says, verse 5 continues, at twilight. The Hebrew here says, Ben Ha'arbaim, between the evenings. Now, that sounds like a perplexing phrase, and it's also hard for me to pronounce, but it is one which accounts for biblical time. In the Bible, a day is divided from evening and it goes to morning. Thus, there are actually two evenings to be reckoned. The first began after 12 and went through until sunset. The second began at sunset and continued until night, meaning the whole time of twilight. This would therefore be between 12 o'clock and the termination of twilight. Between the evenings, then, is a phrase which allows the three o'clock sacrifices at the temple to be considered as an evening sacrifice, even though to us it would be considered an afternoon sacrifice. This is the same time frame that Christ died on the cross, which is recorded in the Gospels as three o'clock in the afternoon. The term Ben Ha Arbaim, or between the evenings, is used 11 times in the Bible. Every single time it is used, it details the work of Christ, the time of day when he died on the cross. Later in scripture, this term would eventually become known as the time of the evening offering, or simply the sacrifice. This is found, for example, in the great challenge between the 450 prophets of Baal and the prophet Elijah. Here's what it says in 1 Kings 18. Then it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that's this time of day, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. If you read that story, everything points to the work of Christ dying on the cross at Calvary. It's a marvelous thing. Sergio talked about it in one of his travel videos a while ago. Marvelous things are to be found in that. But that time of the evening sacrifice that he performed that was the same time that Christ died on the cross. This time became so important to the Jews that even during the exile, when the sacrifices had stopped being made, those who were observant still Use that time of day to make a sacrifice of prayer, petition, and praise to God. 
This is seen, for example, in Daniel chapter 9, where it says this. Now, while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, same time of day that Christ was crucified. Verse 5 continues, is the Lord's Passover. Pesach le Yehovah. Passover to Yehovah. So much for observing this nowadays. It was a Passover to Yehovah until he came in the person of Jesus Christ and fulfilled this completely. We don't have to observe these feasts. I must note now that only the first Passover when leaving Egypt required several things which were never required again. One of them was the selecting of the animal on the 10th day of the month. Nothing is said about that later in scripture. However, that specified period was given for a very specific reason. It was to show that Christ would someday come and be crucified on a Friday. There are so many people that say Christ was crucified on a Thursday or on a Wednesday, and they try to justify the unjustifiable. This was given to show us that that is incorrect, and I will defend that completely, and I'll talk about it more later. He was crucified on a Friday. Despite many incorrect challenges to this throughout the years, the Bible bears witness that Christ died on a Friday, the 14th day of the month. From selection to slaughter is a period of five days. If one selects an animal on the 10th day and sacrifices it in the evening of the 14th day, it is a total of five days. The animal of that original Passover was to be kept during that period and until the time of the Passover. The reason for the Lord mandating this was not that the family could observe it for defects, as is so often claimed. You listen to Passover sermons and you hear that all the time. They were told to select a lamb on the 10th day of the month to make sure it didn't have any defect for five days. No, it was selected because it had no defects. Animals with defects were noted and disregarded at the selection of the animal. The reason for this advanced time was to ensure that everyone had an animal ready for the Passover. The instructions were probably given, if you look at the Exodus account, to the people before the plague of darkness came upon the land. How long did that last? Anybody? Good. Three days. Very good. That plague lasted three full days. Therefore, the selection five days earlier was necessary. However, in picture, that five-day period anticipated Christ's final week from the evening of Palm Sunday until the evening of the Passover, a time frame which the four Gospels record as being five full days. In Mark eleven eleven, it says the following, And Jesus rode into Jerusalem and into the temple, so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. If one counts five evenings from Sunday evening, they will come to Friday evening. Sunday evening to Monday evening is one. Monday to Tuesday is two, Tuesday to Wednesday is three, Wednesday to Thursday is four, and Thursday to Friday is three, right? No, it's five. (laughs) If anyone is interested in a detailed breakdown of the four Gospels showing exactly this, and I mean it is completely detailed. Jim sees it every year. I post it on Facebook, and you still have people argue against it. They they take non-biblical stuff, and they'll throw it in there. They make up all kinds of, well, Jewish tradition says... Doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is scripture. Okay? I will post this. All you need to do is go to the written update of this sermon on the Superior Word website, and it is included at the end of the sermon. The key to understanding the timeline for Christ's day of crucifixion is one term, 
It is the only term you're going to find in all four gospel accounts, and it is the words preparation day. Never seen anybody do this, but I was looking at it, and sure enough, it confirms everything you need to know. Preparation day. It's all four gospels, and if one follows the timeline and notes that term, they can see the absolute perfection of how the timeline given back in the Exodus is realized in those harmoniously recorded gospels. There are four aspects of the original Passover that were only required that one time and were never repeated again. The first was the eating of the Passover in Goshen. They did not go back down to Egypt every year to observe the Passover. The second is the selecting of the lamb on the 10th day. That was a one-time event. The third is striking the blood of the lamb on the lintels of the houses. They never do that again. And the last is eating the lamb in haste. These were one-time events which succeeding generations did not have levied upon them. Thus, the original Passover alone serves as the necessary picture for the greater work of Christ. We need to remember that, the original Passover alone. As an annual feast of the Lord here in Leviticus 23, it was both commemorative of what occurred in delivery from Egypt, and that delivery from Egypt was in anticipation of the full and final delivery of man from the bondage of sin and the yoke of the devil. A lamb spotless and pure without any defect will be sacrificed in my place. And looking at that lamb, I can certainly detect the greatest of love and grace. This I see looking upon his face. Oh, that I could refrain and not see him die. Oh, if there could be any other way, how could this lamb go through with it for one such as I? Oh God, this perfect lamb alone, my sin debt can pay. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the sinless one there on Calvary's tree. He has prevailed and the path to heaven has been unfurled. The Lamb of God who died for sinners like you and me. Our second thought today is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's verses 6 through 8. This is the one that's in the middle of all the feasts. It's not corresponding to any other feast. It is unique, okay? Like the instructions for the Passover, an analysis of the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be incomplete without referring to the original mandate for the feast, which is found in Exodus chapter 12. It's a little long. Let me read it to you. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. I just said it, I'm going to say it again at least once and maybe twice more. They may prepare food on this day. It is not a Sabbath. If you get that wrong, then you can also get wrong about when Jesus was crucified. Verse 17, so you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. Verse 6, and on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. The day after the Passover, a new feast is introduced to which the Passover is joined. 
However, the word feast here is not the same as that used in verse 2 or 4. That was moed. This is chag. It is not good when translations fail to make a distinction between these completely different words. The moed of the previous verses should be translated as appointed times. The word chag can then be rightly translated as feast. The word chag comes from the word chagag, which in turn indicates to move in a circle, or specifically, to march in a sacred procession. From there, you have the implication of being giddy, to celebrate, dance, and feast. It is a time of worship, celebration, and sacrifice. It is a pilgrim feast. The word is based on the same root as the name of the prophet Haggai, and it is also connected to the Arabic word for Hajj, which Muslims perform when they make their annual trek to Mecca to worship their false god. If you look at photos of the Hajj from above, you will see them going in a circle as they move towards the idol of their false god, a black stone called Al-Hajar Al-Aswad, or the black stone. This is the general idea, though, of a Haggag. One moves in a circle in a sacred procession, thus celebrating, dancing, and feasting. This and the final feast, Sukkot, are the only two of Leviticus 23 which are termed Chag. They are also both set off as more than single days, but rather each encompasses an entire week. However, as we're going to see later in scripture, the Feast of Weeks will also be part of a Chag or a pilgrim feast as well. There are three pilgrim feasts, and what that means is Every year, during those pilgrim feasts, all males were required to go to Jerusalem, okay? When we read of the family of Jesus going down to celebrate the Passover and Jesus getting lost, the males were required, the women went along, it was a feast, okay? But the males were required to do these things. Although the Passover and unleavened bread are both annual feasts of the Lord, and even though they eventually will become united in terminology as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, such as in the book of Luke, It is a separate and distinct celebration with its own picture and its own fulfillment in Christ and in his church. As the Passover is on the 14th day of the month, this feast immediately follows from the 15th to the 21st day of the month. Every year at this time, it was to be the standard observance for the people. The 15th of the month would be the time of the full moon. Okay, if you ever hear that there was a, uh, uh, what do you call it, an eclipse of the sun when Christ was crucified, impossible. The moon's on the other side of the planet. Okay, it comes out at night and the moon is full. Verse 6 continues, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Exodus twelve fifteen says the same thing is here, but it further said that on the first day of the feast, they were to remove all leaven from their houses. Whatever day of the week the 15th fell on, they were required to do this, and they were required to keep it out for a full week. During this time, they were to eat unleavened bread. The reason for this at the Exodus was that it pictured the complete removal of the yeast of Egypt from their bread. In the Bible, bread is the fundamental means of sustaining the body, even a symbol of life itself. If one didn't remove the yeast of Egypt, it showed that they longed after that which Egypt provided. In essence, they had failed to separate themselves from the life that they were called to leave. The removal of Egyptian yeast thus symbolized their new life, being purified from their old means of sustaining life. This was to be commemorated year by year, eating unleavened bread as a memorial to their redemption. In general, yeast can be considered in two different ways. First, it causes fermentation and thus corruption, but it also causes the bread to rise right? 
picturing pride, which is in itself a form of corruption. The remembrance of the feast is given to remind them of having been severed from the wicked practices of Egypt, not being filled with those things, not being filled with pride. However, the type is given for us to see the antitype, Jesus and his perfection. It is also to remind us of our obligation to act in a pure and undefiled manner. This is explicitly stated by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Corinthians were having issues with immorality in the church, and Paul wrote to them words of correction. In them, he identifies both Passover and unleavened bread. You've already heard the first part of this where he spoke of Passover. Here's the entire thing. Your glory is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Speaking of yeast in a lump being sin in a church. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. In Christ, we are deemed sinless. Let's act that way is what he's saying. For indeed, Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Feast fulfilled. And then he goes on in verse eight. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We have been called out of spiritual Egypt, meaning the fallen world. If we don't remove the yeast of Egypt, meaning the old immoral ways of the world, it shows that we still long after that which the world provides, rather than longing after Christ and what he has granted. As always, every word that we are seeing in the Old Testament is pointing to a much, much larger picture of redemptive history. In the words of this verse, we are given a positive command. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. This is explicit. For seven days, unleavened bread was to be eaten. It doesn't say you may not eat bread with leaven for seven days. Instead, it says seven days you must eat unleavened bread. It is not a negative command, which means that they could abstain from any bread as long as they didn't partake in leavened bread. Instead, it is a positive command. They were to eat unleavened bread during the entire feast. That goes in picture to what was just cited from Paul in 1 Corinthians. Let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Not only are we to not partake of sin, but we are to actively live our lives in sincerity and truth. It is not that we can abstain from the whole if we abstain from one. It is that we are to abstain from one while partaking in the other. And this is a most important point. What has become fashionable with Judaizers and with the Hebrew Roots movement is to cite those verses from Paul that I just read you as an indication that we're still required to observe the feasts of Leviticus 23. Let us keep the feast, he says. That's not at all what he's saying. He's taking those feasts and he's spiritualizing them into our new life in Christ. We are no more required to observe the Levitical 23 feasts than we are required to go to Jerusalem to do so. And while there, to be required to perform the necessary sacrifices attached to the feasts. Does anybody, anybody that says you have to observe those feasts do those things? No. Don't get duped into believing what those heretics pass on. In Christ, we are deemed as sinless, and we are asked to act in accord with that. That is the substance over the shadow. That is the gold on the table. Take your gold and don't live like the churches full of wickedness that say, oh, we've been redeemed by the Passover lamb and we can live in this immorality. We can live in this sinfulness. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. It says he has redeemed us from that. Now it is time to live in holiness. It is time to live according to what God intended for his people in purity, in sanctity, in truth. And everybody knows that you don't live that way. I know I don't. I struggle with it daily. Just ask dad when he walks by my house. I'm yelling at my computer screen over something, right? I mean, this, we all struggle with this, but we are told to actively seek Christ, to actively eat the unleavened bread. Do not live in the world of immorality and wickedness. That is the double picture there. Verse 7, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. Mikra Kodesh, or convocation holy, is called for the 15th of the month. It was to be a gathering of the people for sacrifice, prayer, and fellowship. It may have also included instruction as well. As I said earlier, these convocations were called by the blowing of silver trumpets, which were directed by the Lord to be made for this very purpose. That is recorded in Numbers 10, verse 10. Also, in the day of your gladness, in your appointed feasts, right here, appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Verse 7 continues, you shall do no customary work on it. Meleket abodah, or work servile, means employment or other regular work. This then is not, and I said this earlier, I'm saying it again, it is not a Sabbath observance which forbid work of any kind, including the cooking of meals. In Exodus 12, verse 16, it was explicitly noted that food could be prepared on this particular day of convocation. Thus, it is not a Sabbath why is this important to know? It is because it once again definitively, very clearly identifies what is correct concerning the death of Jesus Christ. The Gospels precisely state that the day following Christ's crucifixion was a Sabbath, not a convocation. People will say, well, a convocation is a Sabbath. That is not true. You are not to believe that. The day that we are referring to is in Luke 23. Here's what it says. Then he took it down speaking of the body of Christ, wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. The next day is a Sabbath. It is not a holy convocation. Now, it could be a holy convocation on a Sabbath, but we've already seen that the convocation or anything during the feasts is never to interrupt the Sabbath. A Sabbath is a Sabbath and it was always to be observed. Verse 55, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Therefore, understanding the terminology here and in that of the Gospels, we can know, along with all of the other assurances, that Christ's cross occurred on a Friday not a Wednesday, not a Thursday. And that becomes a very important theological issue that we'll talk about when we get to the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That'll be the year 2517, and we'll be there. It'll go so quickly, you won't believe it. Verse 8, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The specific offerings to be made to the Lord are not detailed until Numbers 28. They will include two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. Each was to be without blemish. Along with those, a specific grain offering was to be made. 
Further, a goat for a sin offering was to be made. This same offering was to be made on each day of this feast, along with the regular daily offerings of the priests. Verse 8 finishes us with these words, The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. Not a Sabbath, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. The seventh day of the feast would be the 21st of the month. A second Mikra Kodesh, or convocation holy, was to be held on this day. However, in Exodus 13, verse 6, this seventh day was specifically identified as its own Chag, or feast to the Lord. Israel was not to merely abstain from work, but they were to actively celebrate the work of the Lord. The entire week was to be a feast, but the seventh day was to be a feast unto itself, a festive termination to the entire feast. Wait till you hear what that pictures, folks. Concerning the Exodus account, some Christian scholars attempt to align the resurrection of Jesus Christ with the day that Israel was conducted through the Red Sea. That is incorrect. The number of stops which are recorded in Numbers chapter 33 does not allow that. The Jewish calendar reckons this seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread as that day. Accordingly, the final day of the feast would be the day that they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. This is correct, and there is a reason for it. The two holy convocations bracket the feast. One occurs on the first day of the feast, and the other on the seventh. They stand as representative of the entire period of the feast. But this feast that Israel celebrated is only a picture of our, you and me, our time in Christ in this earthly life from the day of our adoption until the day we go home to glory pictured by the passing through of the Red Sea. Think of it. The Passover is our redemption and immediately we enter our new life. Get rid of the old leaven, live for Christ, be without leaven, live in sanctity and truth, etc. Just as the Red Sea stood before Israel, there is an impossible gulf for us to cross over. And yet the Lord has made that way possible. He has taken the natural and combined it with the miraculous in order to allow his redeemed to cross over to safety on the other shore where our heavenly home awaits. This is the symbolism that we are to see in the observance of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We are redeemed by Christ through his cross, pictured by the Passover. We then enter into our Christian life, pictured by the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, exactly as Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians. At the end, we are conducted home through that once impossible to pass through gulf, pictured by that final joyous feast day. We're worried about Paul right now. The day he dies, I am going to be rejoicing if he dies before I do. R.C. Sproul died this week. He's a great man of God. I speak against him a lot. I don't pull any punches when somebody's wrong. He has now found out from his Lord where he was wrong, as Jim knows. But he is there with the Lord because he was a great man of God, and he taught a lot of good doctrine as well. But we should rejoice when a Christian goes home, except in our own hearts for who we miss as people. That is what we should remember, is not to be like other people who mourn. We have a much greater hope. By the 21st day of the month, the full moon of the first day has become a waning moon, hasn't it? The darkness would have been much more pronounced, just as it is in our deaths. But there was still a brighter light to lead us. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. The path for our full and complete redemption has been paved through 
that once impossible gulf where every drop of water will be removed for our passage. There will be guaranteed safety as we pass through into his glory. Either death or rapture is coming. We lost Gene, what, two weeks ago? He's there with the Lord right now. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, whatever that means. I'm not here to argue that at this time. But the Lord is carefully watching over his flock until that day. When the time of our calling arrives, the infinite gulf will be parted. We, his redeemed, will pass through with ease and safety. This is all pictured in the annual celebration of Israel in the conjoined feasts of the Lord, known as Passover and Unleavened Bread. Concerning the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in Christ we proclaim feasts fulfilled. Our closing verse today comes from Galatians 5, verse 9. And I'm not going to read you that closing verse until I tell you that if you are not in Christ, you will not participate in anything that heaven offers you. Absolutely nothing. There are only two places that the human soul can go. One is off to glory and one is off to not glory. I don't need to dwell on what that means. You will be eternally separated from your creator. He is calling out to us from the Old Testament and the New to tell us that there is one path back to God and only one. Nations have made their choices. They were given the gospel for 2,000 years and they accepted it. They rejoiced in it. They built upon the scholarly work of scholars upon scholars upon scholars. And now we're throwing all that to the wind. Why? Because Israel's back in the land and the Lord knew that this would happen. Israel would become the wedge which would divide the churches and it would divide the people. And the churches that wanted to apostatize would stand against Israel. And the ones that wanted to stand with Israel would be the ones that would hold fast to the word of God that has been preached all of these many, many thousands of years. But here we are at the end and we all are also at the end of our life. Any one of us could keel over right now. Kelly Carlin, here's her picture on my podium here. I look at it every time I walk into this church and I think of this girl I've known since seventh grade. And one day, she never missed a church service. Not one. Never. She was always here, faithfully. She missed two, actually, and that was because her daughter was in the military parade, and that was something important to her. But she never missed a service. She sat right over here every single week. And then one day, her daughter Sarah called me and said, Charlie, Mom died. It was that fast. She got up, stood up, and had a brain hemorrhage and was gone. And that could happen to any one of us. Our last day is today. And the Bible says, today is the day of God's favor. Now is the time of salvation. Might be backwards. Now is the time of salvation today. Anyway, today is the day. Okay? If you have not called on Jesus, there is no tomorrow. You need to make that decision because we don't know when it's coming. Please call on Christ. Here we go. Closing verse. Galatians 5.9. Kind of appropriate to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right? You get a little sin in a church, and all of a sudden that church is completely gross. That is the lesson. We keep the leaven out. If somebody is sinning, we need to call them out. It says, expel the man. Get rid of him. It doesn't mean that he's out of favor with the Lord, except in that he's not in favor with the church, but he will not lose his salvation. That his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Hand such a one over to Satan that his spirit may be saved on the day of Christ Jesus. You don't lose your salvation, but you sure will lose your fellowship and you'll lose your joy in the process. And you may lose your life depending on the sin that you're in. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Next week is Luke 135, announcing history's greatest event. It's entitled, The Son of the Highest and of a Maid Servant. That'll be our Christmas sermon. Good stuff. Important point for you to remember this week. Go back, look at the picture of the feasts as I have them laid out, and remember it. 
Because this is what the Lord wants us to see. Creation and redemption. Creation and redemption. And right in the middle, sanctification. Right? Sanctification. We are to remember that the Lord is holy and we are to conduct our lives in holiness as much as possible. Okay? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Short little poem today, Passover and Unleavened Bread. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim. At their appointed times, each year it shall be the same. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover, a time when the moon is full and burning bright. And on the 15th day of the same month, pay heed to what is said, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, so it shall be for the entire nation. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days, so to you I submit. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. The Passover is fulfilled, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5.7. And for this we are ever grateful to the Lord. It is through his cross that we can return to heaven. So we are assured in your word. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it is fulfilled as well in Christ Jesus. To him we now live in it, as the word is said. Great things, O God, you have done for us. Hallelujah to you, O God, great things you have done. Hallelujah to you, O God, for the giving of Jesus your son, hallelujah, and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the marvelous treasures which are found in Leviticus 23. Help us to be sound in our doctrine and not to get strayed by incorrect analysis of this particular feast or any of the feasts. Because once we do that, we get a skewed analysis of what's going on in the New Testament. Every little bit leads into a wider expansion of inaccuracy. So help us to stay correct in our doctrine to not get sidetracked by people that are trying to promote their own agenda. Help us to be fast and firm in that. And Lord, you know that we're praying right now for Paul and Elaine. We're praying for all of the other people out there that have their own burdens and their own trials. We lift them up to you. And we certainly pray for safe travels for John and Nance who are coming this week to Florida from California for a very specific reason. And we're grateful that they're coming. And uh, we're going to give you praise and glory and honor on that day when we do something together with them. And until then, we do pray that they get here safely, they have a good time, and that they will be safe on their return back. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we commit the Lord's table to you. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.